0: Hi, this is Damon Pistolka, host of the Faces of Business podcast, where we talk to interesting people about life and business. We cover their backgrounds, obstacles they've encountered, and find out what drives them. Along the way, our guests share nuggets you can use to drive your success. Reach me directly, d-a-m-o-n, at exityourway.us, or check out our website, exityourway.us, for more information. I hope you enjoy our show. All right, everyone. Welcome once again. This is Damon Postolko with the Faces of Business talking with interesting people about life and business. And with me today, I've got Patrick Ward. Patrick, thanks for being here today.
1: Thanks, Sam. It's a pleasure.
0: Yeah. So today with Patrick, we're going to be talking about supply chain disruption planning. That's a mouthful, first of all. Um, but it's something that's hitting us squarely in the face. It seems like every day now. Yeah, um, that's certainly the case. And it's something
1: that I think that for probably about the last 40 years, at least hasn't been something that we've really had to think a lot about because things have been running pretty well.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, Pat. Patrick. It's, it really is, is that. And we talked a little bit before we got on and we'll uncover some of that. But before we get into our, our topic for today, Let's go back a ways and and talk about your background and how you really got into supply chain because you know that's not like it's not super popular first of all but you, you've been in it a while you've been doing a lot of different things with it so just talk about it
1: yeah so I actually started my uh, I've been in in consumer packaged goods CPG products essentially my entire professional career. That started out on really on the manufacturing side domestically in the United States. And uh, we were manufacturing, I was part of a group that started a packaging and balloon manufacturing operation from scratch in the US. Wow. Literally to the point of bolting machinery together. And then you know we scaled from a garage activity into a full factory that was about 70,000 square feet with extensive printing equipment and all the rest of that. So I saw that business grow from nothing to where we had about 50 employees and had invested tens of millions of dollars. Um, And I touched everything there from, as I mentioned, bolting things together all the way through doing sales internationally to major party goods and packaging companies around the world. Awesome. Um, So I moved out of that and I started a company Importing furniture directly into the U.S. for sale to consumers, and that got me out of just the manufacturing side of things into the sourcing and the, all the rest of the supply chain activities, from managing other manufacturers all the way through to the logistics and delivery. Um,
0: so ultimately, was that, was that sorry, selling yeah. e-commerce or was that selling through physical stores?
1: We were doing e-commerce, yeah, uh, and that was a direct delivery model. So. Yeah. I saw furniture is a funny activity that it's, there's a reason that there's not a whole lot of e furniture and flat pack is a big deal that yeah. the logistical side of that is extremely important because the damage rates are so high yeah. and the actual shipping costs of moving furniture around are pretty insanely high. Yeah. Um, And there's also, I mentioned damage, there's a reverse logistics aspect of it that I had no clue when we got into the business was going to be such a big part of it. Yeah. So so I would have said that was a learn the hard way on e-commerce and logistics uh, business activity. I eventually transitioned out of that into doing more consulting and with a particular focus on helping companies establish their supply chain's and advanced, well, my ideal client, when I started the consulting business, was somebody who'd just signed up a mass market retailer. So somebody who didn't know how to do it, but they had a bright idea and wanted to move into those larger companies, but really needs the help on how are we going to deliver millions of dollars worth of product that is properly packaged on time, has all the quality assurance, has all the safety, is properly labeled. All of those things that you kind of don't think about when you're yeah. the creator who's just sold something. Um, so that's what, that's what I would say my primary business is. During the time of COVID, uh, like most people, everything's been hijacked by COVID. And I've ended up doing similar work primarily for companies that are working with Fortune 100 firms, like companies that you would, major companies you would have worked with where they've had supply chain failures and have really had to go out of their normal set of vendors to get those problems solved. Um, Great example that I got is there's, and I'm not gonna name names, but there's a major company in the Bay Area that had in their SOPs, in their manufacturing processes had specified Purell like the brand Purell as the only acceptable solution for, you know, keeping your hand sanitized. Yeah. You may remember the Purell was suddenly unavailable. Yeah.
0: yeah, You couldn't get it for months.
1: Exactly. So what do you do? That our he say I got to have Purell. There's no Purell. You know, how are we going to square this? Eventually they of course had to make an exception on the SOPs and go back out and solve the problem that way. But that's a good example of where there was a supply chain failure with the traditional vendor. I'm not, I think it might've been Purell. It may have been their reseller, but there was a supply chain failure there that required somebody to get in and sort the whole thing out and move forward. Mm -hmm. that was outside of the scope of the, the, not so much the scope of the supply chain activity, but the thinking of the supply chain team, that they didn't really have a perspective on how to solve the problem, which is something that I've seen across a lot of companies of, we've always been doing it this way or we don't know what we're doing and they need a fresh set of eyes on the problem.
0: Yeah, cuz it there are things and your your background, a first of all, starting in wide range of background, you have seen warehousing operations, you've seen manufacturing operations, and you've seen supply chain operations and how you have to deliver those things uh as you said take cpg products going to mass market retailers most most people don't have a clue what that means uh other than it's woo we got this big you know we're we're going out into just for example a target you know and they have no idea what the next steps are in that
1: exactly my wife and i actually i'm thinking it was it would have been before covid but we were it was november december and we were walking through target and we stopped in an area of the store that I'd been working on some of the products in there. And my wife turned to me and said, nobody in this store knows the sheer amount of work that it took to get this product to this location.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah, that's exactly. And, it's, and so when you talk about that and you talk about your history and your background and what you've done, you've had to figure some of these situations out and let's, let's back up a a little bit and talk about, and we'll talk about more about helping in the mass market and supply chain in a more normalized environment. But one of the things you touched on when we first started here is we've lived largely in a period where there was lack of supply chain disruption. Can you explain a little bit more about what you mean there?
1: Yeah. So I, the way I can think about this is in the era since the end of World War II, we've had relatively few disruptions on a national and a global scale. Yeah, I can say that we had an oil shock and we've had you know, the occasional crop failure here and there, but nothing on the scale of what you would have been used to living through if you'd been born in, say, 1840, where you would have yeah. seen several major wars across the entire world that you'd have seen, you know, multiple rounds of the Dust Bowl, a lot of stuff like that happened. And that a lot of that, there's a sense that that stopped happening around 1945. So yeah. I use my father as an example, who was born in 1941. And for essentially his entire life, nothing major has gone wrong that I think the biggest event that he can remember was the 1964 Alaska earthquake. That was a big deal to him. Those sorts of shocks are kind of like par for the course for people who are younger, where they're seeing that sort of thing on a regular basis. The other thing that's happened during that period of time is, well, part of what the Cold War was keeping everything stable. Our government was really, really concerned with making sure that the Western world works. The other thing that happened was uh, we had the rise of China, but the Chinese government was also really concerned with making sure that China worked for us as customers. So we've had two forces coming together to make life really easy for a lot of people. And things have, for the most part, for about the last, I don't know, 80 years, really gotten a lot better for people and gotten a lot easier for people. And I see this as our first major disruption a lot, you know, going forward into a new era where there's going to be less stability and we need to have this, we need to really be thinking about how we're going to address this from a supply chain standpoint.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting when you think about it, because yeah, there have been dips, you know, the oil embargoes, uh, uh, but we've largely worked that out with, with different sources and, uh, you know, and there's been things, like you said, crop failures, steel, whatever there's been some 9-11 that would have been a big 9-11 that was a big thing for us Um even when you talk about Vietnam and Gulf War things like that they're obviously huge events but they're not global type World War One, World War Two, or COVID type events yeah nobody ran
1: out of toilet paper during the 2008 financial crash that was self. Yeah, and there was always food
0: yeah yeah yeah, it's interesting, and and what that's what that's basically done then is from what you're saying is because there's been a, a long period where there was lack of disruption. Do you think that allowed us to create supply chains that were a lot more fragile than we should have?
1: Yeah, I really do think that was the case. That we've really emphasized. We throw around words like you know lean and agile and just in time and. All of those methodologies have a place, but what they've been really used to do is to cut costs. And the lack of disruption has served to mask the amount of risk that was being brought into these supply chains by progressively cutting costs. That I feel like every week, there's another sector of industry that I find out Is essentially down to extreme geographic concentration or we're down to single source like single source suppliers or near sources on things and that single source is great from the standpoint of controlling costs and getting the lowest possible price as a buyer but single source carries an obvious risk that if it's a single source and that source goes down what's your plan
0: yeah yeah, that's. That, I mean, both of those examples, ex, examples, extreme geographic conditions. You yep. know, something could happen. Like you know, there's just tons of things that could happen to to really hose things up there, or the single source. And I and I, I think the single source now is where a lot of people have really fallen off. Especially as you look at year over year comfort with, we need to drive costs down. And you go to bigger contracts with fewer suppliers, bigger contracts for fewer suppliers. And then pretty soon you're standing there and we've only got one supplier because we've gone, we've tried to cut costs and cut costs by going into bigger and bigger contracts with people. And then you're, you're left in that situation.
1: Yep. You really are. And that's fine if I only care about whatever the next period is and nothing goes wrong. So, but in the long run, you are, of course, setting yourself up for a major problem.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think about things and and, goo- and somewhat goofy things or like not thought about things are like bananas. I mean, oh, bananas are a great example. Uh, you know, because it's they're they're derived from one plant, and we've got a we've got something that's attacking that plant now, and they don't know what they're going to do to replace it.
1: And as I, I, am not an expert on bananas, but no, having, you know, read up about it. There is a real, there's a real risk that in the foreseeable future, the next 10 years, we're not going to have bananas as we understand bananas today yes. because it is just one type of banana that I don't know. And this is where I would go back to the banana producers and that all oh, the entire supply chain that uses bananas and be asking, what's the plan guys? You can see this coming, but what's the plan? Are you going to substitute oranges and apples for bananas? You know, are you going to create a new banana area of the world that is free of the pathogen? You know, what's the plan? But you got to be thinking about it.
0: Yeah. 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 Cause I mean, cause as you said, and this is, I think this is a key thing that you talked about two key things. One is cost cutting was adding risk at each step we were doing this and we didn't really understand that risk. Yep. And when you combine that and, and that provides gains for this period or the time we're looking at, but it doesn't really protect, it doesn't really consider the risk factor for the long term. That's, yep. that's one huge thing. Uh, along with the fact that we're living in a, we were living in a time of too long of uninterrupted supply chains.
1: Yep. And uninterrupted supply chains allows you to do two things. You can demand lower prices because the perception of the risk is lower. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, not a lot of people are in supply chain. That's because for a long time, it was just kind of a place that where nothing was doing. So you didn't have the best and the brightest going supply chain. They're all off working at Google somewhere doing you know marketing of some sort. Yeah. Not focused on supply chain.
0: Yeah. Oh, you're right. I mean, it was. you when you bring it uh, when you bring it to light the way that you did, talking about how long we've lived in a period of just relatively minor disruptions, real short period of time disruptions. Even you mentioned before we got on the hurricane or crop failure or something, but really in our environment now, a crop failure only means probably until. That we we go north north or south southern hemisphere because mm-hmm. we have the other crop coming off in six months from now so it's that's about the farthest yep. you're out and and uh, uh you know the same thing kind of thing with a hurricane or something else they're just not that devastating on a on a large enough scale that six months out it's going to be a huge thing anymore.
1: Yeah, but unfortunately, and this is where geographic risk really comes into play is. Texas is the perfect example. A hurricane hits the Gulf Coast. We have a major freeze and another hurricane. And we've knocked down a lot of the high-end petroleum processing in this world. So we're out of all sorts of random products from PVC pipe to foam. So, you know, had I thought about that? No, I'm not doing a lot of foam sourcing. But if your primary business, let's say you're a, I don't know, uh, your mattress firm. That your primary business is selling mattresses that require foam. You should probably have a pretty good idea of where that foam is coming from and what it means if there's a major problem and how you're going to mitigate for that. But I don't, we're just now coming around to the idea that we have to think our way through these things and come up with a plan to address the problem. However, you may define the problem and however you may define the solution, but we actually have to have a plan.
0: Yeah, and that, it's a great example. I was I was talking to a, a friend of mine, uh, actually on the show here. I had him on because he's he's been in injection molding for many years, and he, he's a, a technical uh, person for a plastics company that yep. sells the the little beads that turn into all the plastic yep. stuff that we do. And uh, they were he was talking about how that in in uh, Texas there screwed up that industry so bad. And now it's bad enough that they came in and got a whatever's a once every 250 year kind of freeze that went on or yep. 500 year, whatever it was, a horrible freeze for that area. But then he said, You added the fact that COVID was preventing the workers from going in and working normally as they would in normal quarters, close quarters, all that they had to. He said, It just. Uh, exacerbated the problem and, and significantly increased the time to come back online. Yep. So you you make you make a great point. Is that like, what are what are the chances of a historically low temperatures for an extended period of time? in the the southern part of the united states along with a pandemic that we haven't seen since what the whatever 1900s when the the early 1900s when the spanish flu was around
1: yeah.
0: at yeah. the same time
1: in in abstract that sounds like something that what are the chances well the pandemic had been going on for a while so you had at that point i w- if i would have recommended that leadership say this thing isn't going anywhere, so we are in a different risk environment, and we need to recalibrate everything we're doing because that freeze didn't happen at the same time that COVID showed up. It happened what eight, you know, what six, eight months after COVID had showed up. Yeah. After obvious, this was going to be a major problem. So yeah. um, I don't obviously I don't know what the thought process was of all of those companies in that supply chain. But at a certain point, it's obvious that the risk has increased in this environment.
0: You make a great point there because even if it's not affecting you today, the fact that there is a problem should make us go back and should at least cause us to go back and think about where else could we find problems, see problems because we're now in a new situation. Yep. And and it's almost like, I'm always safe driving my car, but if I'm driving my car in this neighborhood that may not be quite as safe, maybe I need to recalibrate the my thought process and I shouldn't be rolling down a window or or you know getting out of my car or whatever you want to call it. I'm just a horrible yep. example, probably, but something like that. No, I think that's a great example of as on a personal
1: basis. It makes sense to you have this is a sketchy neighborhood. Maybe I don't leave my briefcase sitting on the passenger seat. Yeah. Um, you've recalibrated your expectations of, well, not so much the expectation, but your perception of the odds that something bad is going to happen. There you go. Yeah. Um, and obviously if I have my laptop, it probably shouldn't leave it on the passenger seat anyway, but I'm, I'm going to be extra careful about that in certain areas versus none of other areas. I'd probably be a lot less worried about it. Fancy shopping mall. Yeah. I'd be like, eh, who cares? Yeah. Right or wrong. That's my perception. Um, we should do the same thing on a on a global, well, at least regional, but if not global scale, when we think about how to do business, that we've got fire fi- or fires going all over the Western United States right now. So what does that really mean? Well, in Colorado, it means that I-70 and the railroad with it got washed out a couple of weeks ago. So we've lost a major transportation corridor. We now know that that is a potential risk anywhere in the Western United States. So anybody who's listening to this who's moving stuff via rail or via truck should probably be looking at this and saying, is there a choke point in my transportation network that if that choke point went down, it would have a serious impact on me? What does that mean to me? And my guess is that for a lot of people, the answer is going to be yes. And at a bare minimum, you need to be aware of that. It would be better if you had a plan to work around that, but you need to have have some basic understanding of the risk that you face.
0: That is a great piece of insight right there because I I wrote it down because if you do have these choke points, it's it's, it's like most things. Your supply chain is a system like any others. And if you look at your choke points, identify them first, and then go back to those, you, you're not wandering around trying to find where you really need to look. You need to look at those points like that, that, that are your choke points. That if this was able to do what it's doing today, where how is that gonna affect? And where are those spots along mm-hmm. the case? And it's like some, I got, I got 10 different sources, I can do multiple ways, it really doesn't matter. But when you get down to, there is no other way to do this than that right there. Um, those are the ones where you could key in on.
1: Yeah. And it, I, I see a lot of this as kind of expanded common sense. There's a lot of methodologies that we can use. From
0: yeah. The yeah. At
1: one point of like, let's rank the risk and you know, let's decide the odds of this happening and what's the potential outcome and what's the financial impact of that. But it all comes back down to correctly identifying what the risks are and figuring out how you're going to live within those constraints, whatever they may be. Um, And, you know, yeah, you said 10 suppliers. In my little town just north of San Francisco, I'm going to say there are six separate grocery stores. So the odds of the town running out of water today, out of bottled water today are pretty slim. But also know there's only two ways in and out of town. So if we have an earthquake, the odds that we run out of bottled water are really, really, really high. Yeah, and if I'm running my home as a business, I should be aware of that. And also, if I'm running a business in this town, I should be thinking about what that means to me. And you yeah. can expand that way of thinking out to the whole world and the rest of all the all the other t- things that touch you and are potential risks.
0: Well, and you make a good point. It's it's not just it, it, we're talking about it in business, but we should use this a bit in our personal lives as well when we think about things. Because water is a great example. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have water, it's a it, that's that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it, becomes, it becomes a problem very fast. Yep. Uh, so what are so we, we talk about these problems now? But are you seeing people do anything?
1: Uh, I think that the willingness to think about doing things is there, but I think it's, I think we are in the midst of a, we're in the midst of a cultural change from the old way of doing things to actually dealing with doing things that I saw a lot of companies that I was working with vendors, working with the companies over the last year where they accomplished a lot during the the immediate emergency of COVID. And once that perception of emergency went away earlier this year, obviously it's back, the old way of doing things reasserted itself and kind of got people back to square one where they weren't really prepared to address the fundamental issues. Um, I'm guessing that this this current Delta wave that we're in is probably going to shake things up a lot but i'm not yet seeing on a massive scale across all the people that i talk to a uh, fundamental reevaluation of like the way we're doing things and why um, that's hard you know that you've got to have a lot of willingness to be introspective about you know yourself about your company about your culture to really address address those things. And, you know, there's a lot of things people are doing in their lives and introspection isn't something that we're all particularly good at. You know, I don't, I don't like thinking about all the things that are wrong with me. It kind of sucks. Yeah. Why do I want to do this every day?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And I think you're right. I think that, that we, we got, um, we, you know we all got tired of being, kind of limited in what we could do and when the when the light kind of started to turn back on we were like oh great and just a big sigh of relief and everybody rushes out and it's this is this is over and mostly because we've lived this long time without these kind of challenges and and, you know for us certainly never saw anything like this at this scale nearly closely by anybody's uh, measure in our lifetimes and
1: To your question about like changing culture, I don't think we're there yet. My wife is a business continuity consultant that she works for a major consulting firm doing that. And so she sees all the job postings that come through. And there's a lot of people looking for a very junior person to do business continuity. You would think in the era of COVID, that would be senior job, but we're not yet seeing the up leveling of the responsibility that senior management in a lot of companies isn't there yet.
0: Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is, this is get, getting more interesting all the time. It's getting interesting all the time because we, we have, uh, maybe this was a good wake up call. Maybe it wasn't, but it, I, I, you just don't, you just don't know. And it, and it certainly doesn't seem, and I'm not just talking about the fact that we ran through the, the COVID or still in COVID and all this good stuff. I was talking about the fact that the odds are against us living without these things for as long as we we did before. Oh, without a doubt, they are. And when you talk about anything that people can disagree or agree on or whatever, changing climate, fires, (laughs) war, (laughs) geopolitical, you know, whatever you're talking about, I mean, we've been able to to live in a... um, as you said and i agree it's as a relatively undisturbed huge uh without undisturbed from huge overacting overarching things like a world war or something like that and it, i just i just get it's kind of concerning that we aren't having having more of the conversations around what are we really doing to um work on work on as we're talking about today supply chain disruption considering the fact that we've seen what we've seen over the last year mm-hmm. just go over the last year and go okay how much how much did it really hurt your business over the last year because you couldn't get product for for 3 4 months like you want out of the year how much did it cost you because of that how much did it cost you in the fact that you had stuff sole sourced out of one place in the world that couldn't ship you product for Five months or whatever, yeah, or it
1: it's tied up in port right now because you yeah. you didn't have your processes together to get it done sooner than last minute, which is what we're seeing at the moment.
0: Yeah, yeah. So. And and I was I had somebody on uh, I think it was earlier this week or last week. I had a few supply chain people on, but. Um, he was mentioning that the price I was, I was flabbergasted at the price of container shipments from China to long beach. Cause I mean, I, li- I, I grew up in the day where it was three, $4,000, something like that to bring a yep. container. And now it's, it got up over $15,000 to do it. And I was like, Holy boy, that's a lot. Yep. Yep. Certainly I had the same experience when, when I first
1: started shipping things overseas, I just plugged in $4,000. Yeah. It might've been 3,800. It might've been 4,200. I didn't know what it was going to be at the end of the day, but I know it was going to be about $4,000. Like, yeah. who cares? And it was really eye-opening to get caught in this cycle of increased prices and not being able to push that through. Because when you negotiate those things, when you're putting these chains together, you think you're going to solve for this much. And you know that requires pricing to be here. Well, it's ratcheting up on you.
0: Yeah, and when you think about that, and you go, if I'm going to sell something into a mass mass market retailer, and I'm going to sell it for, just say I'm going to sell it for ten bucks, yep. and and on a container, a ten dollar item on a container, what do you think you can get? Two hundred thousand dollars worth of that on on a container package item? Sure. Probably not. Maybe it, it is what I mean, it is. However much it is, you know, but however much it is exactly. Yeah. Uh, but if that if that price goes from 4000 to 15000 or, four, or or you know goes up by $10,000 uh that's a significant amount when you look at the overall margins on your product that you're trying to do because at the other end you don't just go okay we're going we're going to get to raise prices to you yep and, and uh again back to something else that you you help people with in your in your mass market understanding what you're uh, taking things to the mass market retailers understanding what the contracts really bind you to
1: yeah and that's actually a container ships are a great example of where you need to understand how your supply chain is going to work and what your options are so let's say that we're selling things to walmart um and this is a theoretical example just to be clear that yeah yeah walmart has the ability to pick up things in most overseas locations. They also are going to take a given amount of stuff where you are going to provide the transit worldwide for Walmart. So let's say you deliver it in Los Angeles instead of delivering it in Shenzhen. If you can get Walmart to take it overseas, you know, your transportation problem is solved, you know, like yeah. Walmart has the scale that they can either erase prices to control the prices or they can, Keep that overall price level low versus if I, you know, Patrick doing business as Patrick Inc., am getting 10 containers from overseas, I have no control and yeah. I'm at the mercy of the market. And that's an area I'm a price taker. So the question is, what can I do to lock in that price? The answer is very little because the freight lines are just not honoring locked in pricing. Or can I work with my vendor, sorry, not my vendor, but my customer so that they take it earlier on so that I don't get killed and we continue to provide the solution to the final consumer. But yeah, I think that's a great example where you have to think back through what is really possible and where you can make the changes. Yeah. And it's, it may be difficult. It may require some difficult conversations. But get get those conversations going now. Get everybody attenuated to the idea that we're going to have to do something different. And don't wait till it's a failure.
0: Well, yeah, there's there's been a lot of businesses have gone under in the last year and a half because they haven't dealt with it. And they they just didn't didn't have the uncomfortable conversations with what they needed to do. So as we look forward in some of these things, I mean, some people would look at it and say, hey, we just need inventory. Some people need whatever. So what are you thinking? Some of the things that we really need to do when we're looking at, you know, I'm 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 an OEM manufacturer in the middle of the United States. I've got global supply chain, things coming from everywhere. I mean, what are some of the things that we really should be doing?
1: Well, I, I look at it as a, there's a procession of things that you should do. We've talked a lot about, understanding your supply chain and understanding your risks. So that's really like the top level item is if you do nothing else, at least dig into everything and make sure you understand your entire chain. You you go digging underneath you know, the stuff over there we have got three suppliers to make sure that they're not sole sourcing from somebody else so that you figure out where you actually have these risks. Um, number. So once you've done the analysis, number two would be in my mind, you've got to process that and see what, what is worth the investment. So you mentioned, do we you know bring on more inventory? That's kind of like down on my list of things to do that I'd like to instead see, can we do something with our existing supply chain to reduce our overall risk? That are we going to be late for, because I do a lot with mass market, are we going to be late for Christmas? How can we not be late for Christmas? Well, we can stick with our our design and production timelines so that we're not shipping late. So that means going back through the entire business and saying when we say we need to start developing for a holiday 12 months in advance, actually getting it done, not waiting for six months and then rushing it and then asking supply chain to pick up the slack and everything. So I think examining processes is probably number two. And only after that, and when you have said we've tightened up our processes, this entire organization now understands what we need to do. Now we can have a discussion of, do we bring on additional supplier? Do we bring on excess inventory? And really looking at those as tactical mitigation responses, rather than a primary way of doing things. So I'd rather tell you that your business can run better today by making sure your product design team actually designs on time. And yeah, these are going to be hard things to do. Nobody wants to be wrong about things, but making sure you hit those timelines up front is going to be a lot better than missing Christmas.
0: Yeah. And that's a great point because it's just, it's like you said, we've been able to, because there's not been many disruptions, we can accelerate the supply chain if we need to. And we've kind of gotten used to that.
1: We have gotten used to that.
0: And it's just not going to be the case. I mean, because the example is like when they were stopping production of very popular automobile lines in the U.S. because they couldn't get IC chips or other products uh, or, or, you know, major truck manufacturers is in uh, one of my friends runs an upfitting company and a large larger one on on the West Coast here. And it's they're getting trucks delivered without. The hardware to roll the windows up on the on the driver and passenger side, you know, and that's going to be added later, but they don't have it now. I mean, what were these people doing? I mean, what was going I, on? I wonder exactly. What were
1: they doing that? I thought a lot about that one because it's such a major failure. Of yeah. The chain. But I've got to believe that it comes back down to, and we know that with the car companies, let's be clear, they have, as far as it, we're concerned, all the money in the world. They have no, there's not no yes. lack of resources. Yes.
0: Exactly.
1: But I view that one fundamentally as a cultural thing that if, take pick on GM. If you worked for GM, you're, you're used to your vendors being super willing to do whatever they can to get your business. You're not used to Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing being like, you guys canceled your orders and we sold it all to Apple. We don't really care about you. You know, that, that this is something where you've, you've again, in, in the overall strategic view of your supply chain, you didn't understand where you really fit into that market, which was you are a secondary or tertiary customer for that that semiconductor line, not a primary customer where everything was going to be done for you
0: and when and when the overall capacity got shrunk back the secondary and tertiary customers are the ones that paid the price yep
1: because the overall we had the disruption those we know in the with the auto guys they didn't know what was going on so they canceled all their orders on the assumption they were just going to be able to turn it back on and that capacity either went away permanently or it was given to somebody else who you know I don't know, let's say microsoft wanted more xboxes because everybody's yeah. going to be at home well you know microsoft got there first guys that's kind yeah. of the way
0: it is yeah they took the capacity and it wasn't there for them to use and the capacity had already leaned out to where yep. these kind of changes are hard to to ramp up yeah, yeah, I, yeah. it's it's just amazing to me um but now that you look at it, you go back and you look at it, like you said, you, you know, we've lived for so long with relatively few long-term supply chain disruptions that this is, you can see why it's happened.
1: Oh, totally. And the, with the semiconductor shortage for cars, that's one where I, I view that as a failure of just-in-time manufacturing. That nothing happened for however many years, you know, we'd never had a problem. We were using more, set more chips. There was never a problem. There's always enough. And you could lean down your inventory of chips, lean it down, lean it down. And just in time was working, but that lack of disruption masked that underlying risk of what happens if, and you know, we got the if. So, um, I'm sure that there were plenty of analyst calls with the wall street firms where they said, why are you guys holding so many chips? And, you know, again, the pressure was to reduce the amount of inventory on hand. Yeah. So I can see both sides of this one. I still think it's unacceptable, but I can see both sides of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because it is, it is, it is hard to comprehend. I mean, it's hard to comprehend that an automotive company any of them really Mm -hmm. can't can't find them you're not going to be able to produce cars you're going to you know put that whole thing into a into a standstill because you can't get a few of the items you need to get for that yep and yeah anyway that that's it's a it's a it's an example of and, and you said like you said before too the the in Houston with the specialty products and the freeze and the COVID. I mean, we've we've had so many things in the last in the last year that that have combined together to to really make this this interesting, if nothing else, for the people yeah, sitting so on the outside.
1: My hope is that people in these different industries look at this, people in small businesses as well, and say, "How what can I do with my operations today to at least have." I'm not even saying having a plan, just have a recognition of what the risk is that at least then you're not snowing yourself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this is, this is, has it, we're talking about big problems, big companies. Now, how are you seeing, or do you, do you get around like localish businesses and see the things that are happening with them that really, really change that too? Yeah. With the local businesses,
1: you, it's there, it's a harder sell. I I view that as more of a design challenge than anything else, but it's a harder sell to go back to you and say, Hey, you know what you really need to do is I know you're always short on cash. So you got four employees and you don't know how you're going to make rent next month, but you know, you've really got to go do whatever that's going to cost you a hundred thousand dollars. Nobody's going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but a good example is I'm working with a company right now that is standing up a new seafood line that they're intending to ship from the East Coast into the Mountain West. And there I feel like and it can add a lot of value because we can they're going to have to pack seafood somewhere, right? It's got to be packed and frozen. There's an obvious risk of if your packer's refrigeration goes down, what are you going to do? the mitigation is pretty simple we just need to find another packer but because we're seeing that up front this is going to be not costly versus the day that the primary packer says sorry we burned up yesterday we know you got you know seafood on the way but we can't do anything about it that's a major problem versus if we've already identified plan b that's a relatively minor problem of just turning the truck a different direction so yeah. for local businesses, that's really where I see that you have an opportunity in the design phase of your business of really figuring out what you're going to, what you're going to do and how you're going to be doing.
0: It. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great example because it is when you're thinking about it in the beginning, thinking again, of those points where you could have problems and working through that's a lot less costly than it is when you're dealing with it at the end. Yep. Um, yeah. you know, it's a classic, you know, um, well, you know, ounce of prevention
1: is worth a pound of cure that if we can do that up front and this, this really starts on the, the small scale and works up. If we can design more resilient systems or at least be aware of our faults, then we're going to be in a lot better shape.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Good stuff. I I just, it's so fascinating to me. um, When you look at the perspective that you outlined, you know, we've lived in this time without disruption, the lean and the other things have allowed us to to be kind of lulled into the fact that we're increasing risk by reducing inventory and sole sourcing and yep. and getting really focused geographically uh, on our sources from a product. Um, what are some of the things that that you think we're going to see five years from now? That
1: that's a great question. I think we're going to see a lot of emphasis on. Um, companies being scrappier and able to stand up their own supply chains in locations they haven't been doing it before, whether or not that's domestically or in areas like the Americas where we're not doing as much manufacturing as you might think we're doing. Um, That's going to require that we bring a lot more resources in-house versus just outsourcing everything to a supplier in China who can kind of do the whole thing for us. That's, yeah. that's been the way we've been doing things, and I don't, I don't think that model is going to be considered acceptable going forward. I do think we're going to see higher prices as a result, and frankly, I think that we should see higher prices. That our lower, our low prices are, you know, it's like cheap empty calories. It feels good right now, but we pay a price later.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I've I've thought that for a number of years. Is that. We are, we are living in a, a false sense of reality with our pricing. And, and we, I mean, I, I think that's across the board. I think it's energy. I think it's products. I think <laughs> it's everything. Uh, we're not, we're not, we're going to have to come and pay the price sooner or later. And yeah. I think you're right because when you look at the way a company is set up, it's not going to be as simple to just go, okay, take Boeing, for example. And I don't know. So if someone says I'm wrong, yeah. I'm wrong, but you know, the, the fuselage is designed and manufactured by somebody else. The wings designed and manufactured by somebody else, you know, Boeing lays out the designs and stuff to a certain extent, but how much they do compared to somebody else, uh, like you're saying, it might more of that might have to be in house because then we can specify what we want that can go to six different places and get done. And we may have to do some more of it ourselves.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I think Boeing's a good example that all the things get outsourced in Boeing, they're, If I were Boeing, I'd be looking at the world saying one of our core competencies should be understanding our entire manufacturing process, not just the plane design and the plane marketing, but manufacturing planes is really what we do. We better understand how these things are manufactured.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: It shouldn't be a shock when we find out that we can design air conditioning to save our lives or whatever it is.
0: (laughs) Yeah. 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 That's oh, good stuff. It's really interesting because I think we're we're at a crossroads here. And I think we're going to be um, a lot of exciting stuff in your world and supply chain and, and really figuring some things out and and causing us to rethink, too. I mean, it's it is going to make make some companies rethink, because if you look at lost opportunity because of the supply chain disruption um, and, and what that really costs, I think we're going to see a lot more, if nothing else if we see more do du- duplicate suppliers or, or and yep. rather than sole source suppliers and things like that, that will help us a lot. Yep. And, and uh, as you said, get it out of the same geographic zone and those kind of things, it could really make a, a difference. Yep.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I don't know how that's going to play out, but I know that the pressure is, is going to be on to get that done, that there's just no way that we can continue to operate with, you know what's going on right now
0: so yeah yeah yeah. it's good stuff well we have uh one more thing we got we got peter stepped in for said excellent discussion thanks for listening peter thanks peter uh, appreciate that yeah uh, but patrick it was awesome having you on today because yeah. this this kind of stuff it, you know as as you said this usually just happens in the background we're sitting here going, yeah, the products show up. We, you know, in manufacturing and retail and all this, and we work on all these little details around the outside, but this has really given us some challenges that are kind of cause us to rethink the way we source products around the world, around this corner and, and how we run our businesses. Yep.
1: Yeah. Uh, and Damon, I really appreciate the conversation that it's, it's uh it's gonna sound funny. It's good to be heard on these things that a lot of people like, you know, I st- I start explaining this, they're like, wait, what are you talking about? Oh man, this is gonna suck.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yep. Good stuff. Well, Patrick, if someone wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Um, well, you can
1: reach out to me obviously on LinkedIn, um, yep. Patrick Ward, or you can reach out to me directly at my email, Patrick.ward at isc-na.com. The company is called International Supply Consulting, and the website is isc-na.com. Awesome,
0: awesome. Well, Patrick, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Faces of Business. We appreciate you. We love your input, and we hope you're going to be back again next week with us. Oh no, next week I am taking a summer break. It's awesome. We're going to enjoy a little August time off and we will be back the following week after that with some more guests talking about uh, interesting things in life and business. Thanks so much. Thank you.